companies need to change the way they make decisions, the way they do their planning and resource allocation in order to put the resources where the strategy says those resources should be going, whether it's dollars or people. It just seems like an enormous opportunity that hasn't been cracked. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Tim Kohler. Tim's a partner in our Denver office, who will be well-known to many of you as he's also the co-author of the best-selling book, Valuation, now in its seventh edition with nearly one million copies in print. Tim has also helped to launch and steer our publication, McKinsey on Finance, through 80 issues over the past 20 years, beginning with the very first issue, which was published in the summer of 2001. In our previous episode, Tim was joined by Obi Ezekoye and Warner Rehm when they discussed the timeless truths of corporate finance and looked ahead to three urgent challenges facing finance executives in 2022. Today, Tim will discuss changes in the corporate finance and valuation landscape that have taken place over the last two decades in a wide-ranging conversation with the editor of McKinsey on Finance, David Schwartz. David is an executive editor at McKinsey based in our Tel Aviv office. He's a former consultant, CEO, and still recovering attorney. He also has, by his own admission, perhaps the slowest running pace of anyone who regularly runs 10 to 15 kilometers a day. Tim, David, welcome to the podcast. David, why don't you kick us off? Yes, I can say that my running time was much faster, though still not fast, in 2001 when I was a summer associate. So, Tim, I know what you told me about value creation back 20 plus years ago, but what would the Tim Kohler of 2022 tell the Tim Kohler of 2002 about value creation? Thanks, David. Thanks, Sean. I think that the, the the Tim Kohler of 2022 would probably say much of the same things, right? If you look at our valuation book, the first edition came out in 1990, right? The core messages are all the same, right? I have, so fundamentally, we've been focusing companies on the idea that value creation comes from the combination of revenue growth and return on capital, which drives cash flows. I wouldn't change that part one bit, right? I think what has changed, though, is my views of more subtle things like you know, the fact that w- what we experienced in 2000 and 1999 and also probably in 2021 was a bit of a bubble in tech stocks, for example. So I'm probably less confident about sort of the long, uh, the short-term alignment of share prices and economic fundamentals. I also realize now, you know, even if companies understand and implement the ideas and develop their strategies based on growth and return on capital, they don't always follow through in terms of the way they actually spend their money. Now I tell myself back then, to spend more time, which I've been doing more recently, on helping companies how to translate their great strategic plans into and actually into action. How do you overcome the organizational barriers, the cognitive biases, et cetera, to actually spending money in aligned with the strategies that you'd like to pursue and your and your aspirations? Tim, let's suppose we can go back further than than that, further than 2002. 
it's 1972, let's suppose, and, and you have perfect information. We're about to enter a period of high inflation, low growth, and geopolitical shocks. What should a CFO or a CEO have done then? Um, well, first of all, I think that the hopefully the situation today is different than what we experienced back in 1972, right? Now, back in 1972, what we what we experienced was a period of high inflation and an employment that lasted for a decade uh, uh, until Paul Volcker came and jacked up interest rates and and sort of got everything back under control again, right? Hopefully, the situation today, while there's a lot of uncertainty, is very different. And hopefully, the government policies will not lead to the pro prolonging of inflation. They won't make it worse. What I would tell CFOs back then, right, if I knew that we were going to have inflation for 10 years, right, and also sort of anemic economic growth and high unemployment, it is very dependent on the company's situation. And we find that different sectors respond very differently to different types of forces, right? So for example, innovative sectors continue to grow as long as there's innovation. So tech, pharma, et cetera. So for example, if I was talking to a tech or pharma CFO back in 2000 or back in 1972, I'd probably say, stay the course, continue to focus on innovation, because if you don't do it, someone else is going to do it. So continue to invest, right? If I was talking about to a branded consumer packaged goods company, I'd probably also say the same thing. You know, people still needed to buy breakfast cereal, soap, laundry detergent, et cetera. And those companies had the ability to increase prices as with inflation and were able to maintain fairly good results. If I was talking to a cyclical manufacturing company or an auto company or something like that, obviously the answer would be different, right? The answer might be back in 1972 is, you know, be a little bit more cautious because, you know, demand is going to be low. So you don't want to expand. You, you do want to continue to innovate. You do want to continue to try to stay ahead of the competition, but you know, don't go around, don't go around building a lot of excess capacity that, you know, is going to take a while for it to be used up. So the answer then in 1972 and today, by the way, in terms of what we face really varies a lot from sector to sector. And I think that's something that has to be considered when, you know, if you read the newspaper or whatever, and people pontificate on what companies should do. Let me try to go broader then. Let's go back to 2022. Here we are. We have a pretty good idea of some known knowns. Obviously, the net zero imperative, AI and machine learning. We can see prominent demographic trends, particularly an aging population in more developed economies. What would you be interested to ask the Tim Kohler of 2042 in terms of how did that turn out? Well, as, as you said, there's a lot of things that we do know about, right? So we know about digital and artificial intelligence and those kinds of things. And we know, you know, the benefits of them, although the benefits are perhaps not as big as they're made out to be. There's a couple of things we don't know about. We are faced right now with a situation in terms of the macro economy that's sort of 
unprecedented, I think, right? We've had very loose monetary policy for the last 10, over the last 10 years, right? That has built up the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. The Federal Reserve has been buying bonds, most of the treasury bonds, forcing down interest rates to ridiculously low levels, right? That's just not a sustainable kind of thing. And that's why even before the inflation numbers were announced, were in early 2021, there were some prominent economists concerned about inflation, right? And how do we overcome this, right? Especially with the strong economy. At the same time, we are facing massive supply shocks, partly due to COVID, or a lot of it due to COVID, due to the due to the war in Ukraine, which is pushing up, which is pushing up prices, right? Uh, we also have a situation where we have labor shortages for for various reasons. People are not uh, returning to work despite the availability of jobs. I would want to tell tell me, okay, how do these things interact and how do we get out of this, right? If Federal Reserve sticks to, let's get interest rates back to normal. Let's let the economy uh, fix itself. I think that we can get through this period of time in a year or two at, without too much difficulty, right? You know, if the government does things as they did in the 1970s, introducing wage and price controls, rationing gas, uh, all kinds of other interventions into the economy that created massive uncertainty, discouraged people from investing, et cetera, you know, it could be much longer. If I could predict that, then we have a better sense of, is this something which is, you know, painful but short? Or is this something that could go on where we could end up with high inflation and recession that could last for a longer period of time? A lot of that will depend upon how, how governments around the world respond to the, to, to the current situation. So if I had a crystal ball, that's what I'd want to know. You don't have a crystal ball. You have uh, Jeremy Siegel, whom, whom we both read. He was my professor. Are you still feeling long on equities? Um, I still feel long on equities. First of all, I don't believe that you can do a very good job of timing the market, right? And I think the market is overvalued. But, you know, even at my age in my 60s, right, I still view that over at almost every 20 year period, you can imagine, right, stocks will outperform anything else you can, you can, you, you, you can invest in, right, by their very nature, right, because they're linked to economic growth, and profitability, primarily economic growth. I'm very proud that I have two daughters who are now in the workforce, and they both are very diligent about putting, you know, money into their 401ks and saving. And they have, and I, you know, convinced them to put all of their money into index funds because they're in their 20s, right? And you know, by the time they're 50, 60 the they you know they will ride the ups and the downs and they will be much better off than anything else that they can invest in right there's just there's just nothing that compares to investing in in in, in stocks over over the long term which is almost a repeat of what jeremy siegel's t- the book the title of his book was right stocks for the long term right and 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 i'm also optimistic because it's not just a, a coincidence that stocks earn, let's say, six and a half to seven percent real returns over longer periods of time, whether it's 200 years or the last 20 years. Right. It's not a coincidence. It's due to 
the things that we talked about at the very beginning. It's due to the growth of companies and about the return on capital, right? And so as long as companies grow with the economy and are able to continue to earn the kind of cap returns on capital that they earn, we will be able to earn those kind of returns on stocks uh, for the next 20 and, and 40 years. But you mentioned your daughters. Good for them that they've taken your advice so early. I guess a major critique of the market is that it is not sufficiently inclusive. And while most American households do hold stock directly or through mutual funds or 401ks, a sizable segment does not, which presents the question, whom does a rising market help and whom does it leave out? I think we need to have to separate out the, the direct effects from the indirect effects, right? So what you're talking about are the, the direct effect. Yes, not everybody is invested in the stock market, right? That is true. So the immediate returns accrue to people who are in a position to own shares, right? And by the way, you know, there are plenty of people who own shares who may not realize it. You know, if you have a pension plan from your employer, et cetera, that pension plan is partially invested in stocks, right? But I think what's more important is the indirect effects and, and what would happen if we didn't have the stock market. So the the indirect effect, right, is that the returns on the stock market encourage people to invest, right? Whether it's building new factories or stores or innovation, investing in drug research, investing in technology research, et cetera. So what the stock market does, it enables the creation of wealth for the whole economy, right? It, it grows the entire economy, right? If you go back Less than 100 years, I think the number is somewhere around, you know, 40% of the population was involved in feeding the country, you know, basically agriculture workers, right? And now I think it's, the number is somewhere around 3%, right? And, you know, people have moved on to other jobs. So the standard of living uh, that we experience today, even those people who don't own stocks typically have air conditioning, they have iPhones, they have multiple televisions, they have uh, very reliable automobiles, right? They have much better housing than we did, you know, 100 years ago. Um, and all of that, I don't think would, would, would have come about without the stock market as a facilitator, right? So I think it's, it's, you can't just look at the direct effects, you have to look at these indirect effects, right? The stock market and the ability to create wealth encourages innovation. You know, it also encourages competition, right? It enables me to raise capital to compete with somebody else, right? Which lowers prices, right? In many categories, prices are much lower than they were 50, 70, 80 years ago, right? Prices are highest in areas that are not subject to competition and not subject to as much innovation, right? So if you look at education. There hasn't been much innovation in education. So we spend a lot more on education than we used to, right? Healthcare, with the exception of the pharmaceutical and medical device industry, you know, the way we deal with doctors and hospitals is pretty much the way we dealt with it 50 years ago or more, right? I'm spending a lot of time on the markets. I guess that's top of mind. We're seeing more than a little chop 
in the markets. And we're also seeing increased regulatory rulemaking. I, I understand the evidence for competition. It's, it's manifest. But is there a point where a rational company would say that the burdens of being a public company are just too much? I'd imagine there has to be some tipping point, right? Otherwise, assuming you have adequate equity capital, why not stay private or go private? Yeah, it really is very company specific. You know, many large companies are just too large to go private. Once you get above a certain size, there's not enough enough capital. You do see, you know, medium sized companies going private from time to time. They often then will go public later on because these investors need to cash out at some point. So the the need to be able to cash out and monetize creates a cycle sometimes where you go public private. Despite the 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 regulatory burdens, there still are lots of reasons why you know, the bulk of the market cap of companies will probably be listed companies, right? There are some exceptions. You know, there are family-owned companies that have never gone public, but it works only for certain kinds of companies where you don't need to spread the wealth around the employees. The other reason for going public is that it allows you to spread your wealth and to attract more talent, right? The reason most companies go public uh, nowadays, younger companies, right? Sometimes it's to raise capital, but more often than not, it is to to provide uh, opportunities for wealth creation for more employees and for liquidity for the founders and owners, right? Tim, do you think there's something to being a public company that can be inimical to innovation or creative destruction, particularly the need, I'm putting that in in scare quotes, to meet quarterly and annual earnings targets? I think there's a a number of different dimensions here. Let's separate them in terms of the internal dynamics of of companies and the external forces driving them, okay? Um, I think that there are many executives, CEOs, boards, et cetera, who perceive that the markets are very short-term oriented and therefore you have to sort of worry only about quarterly earnings. We've done a lot of research The companies that succeed are typically those that do take a longer term horizon. Um, And there are plenty of investors out there who uh, have a long horizon as well. The problem is the market is made up by people with different different investing strategies. You've got some long-term investors, you've got some short-term investors, right? The long-term investors typically only need to talk to a company once, once or twice a year to make their decisions. Short-term investors want to talk to a company every couple of weeks sometimes, right? So the short-term investors are the noisiest investors. And so it appears as if they're the ones who are driving the market. And in fact, they probably do drive the short-term volatility of the market. Our research suggests, though, that it's longer-term investors that really drive the level of the share price over time. If you take a typical large U.S. company and probably similar for large European companies, long-term institutional investors and retail investors, which tend to be long-term, we found that those typically add up to about 75% of the shareholder base. 25% of the shareholder base, therefore, is short-term investors. But as I said, they're the noisy ones. So we encourage our clients to spend more time 
focusing their energies, communicating with getting to know the longer term investors. That's the external thing. There is an internal thing as well, though. Oftentimes there is a, they're not set up for innovation, right? Uh, part of it is because their compensa compensation systems tend to be short-term oriented. Um, the boards aren't deeply enough involved to focus on staying the course on innovation. Uh, we've been doing a lot of research recently. What we found was that well over 60% of executives we surveyed felt that their companies were not investing enough in growth and not, and, 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 and not taking enough risks. We also found that there's a disconnect between here are our grand strategic plans, but here's how we actually spent our money this year. So how do you overcome that, right? Um, some of my colleagues recently wrote an article on innovation and they talked about how do you overcome fear in an organization, right? You have to put in place, for example, um, mechanisms to encourage people to come forward with ideas that could be risky without fearing that it'll damage their career. If you know they do a good job, but circumstances outside the control of the company may still make it unsuccessful, right? You know, you want companies to be making multiple bets, and and, and if you only do things that you are pretty confident are going to pay off, you're not going to you're not going to win. So companies aren't doing a very good job of that, and they also tend to respond too much to often self-imposed short-term pressures for earnings often because of the their compensation systems, but I would not blame it on the stock market. I have to ask Tim, how did an accounting and finance person become so interested in decision-making and decision biases? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think the answer is pretty simple. I, I, you know, I spent most of my career focusing on the analytic side of things, right? Financial analysis, strategy, value creation, stock markets, et cetera. But maybe almost 10 years ago, when I started learning about sort of decision-making and cognitive biases in decision-making, I realized that companies were not following through on the strategies. And I discovered that part of it had to do with these cognitive biases, right? And I figured, well, we need to figure out a way to help companies not just come up with good strategies, but how to actually uh, act on those strategies, right? And the only way to solve those problems is through on the social side of the way companies work, right? And we've identified a number of biases that we see a lot in companies. You know, psychologists have identified more than 60 cognitive biases in the way people make decisions, right? We've boiled it down to sort of four groups of biases. One is a roughly groupthink. You know, there's lack of debate inside companies. Another is confirmation bias, the fact that we look for confirming events. Loss aversion, we weight losses more than gains. And then finally, uh, anchoring or inertia. You know, we tend to anchor decisions based on what we've done in the past. I see this with companies all the time. They allocate capital based on last year's plus or minus a little bit instead of starting from scratch, right, based on where the real opportunities are. And so what we're doing is we're saying, you know, these are all things that get in the way and companies need to change the way they make decisions, the way they do their planning and resource allocation in order to put the resources where the strategy says those resources should be going, whether it's dollars or people. It just seems like an enormous opportunity that hasn't been cracked, which is why I sort of have become so excited about getting involved in the softer side of of how companies actually make decisions and develop their plans. 
there's probably a lot of tips. And when you mentioned budgeting, I made, I immediately think of zero-based budgeting. What are two or three tactics that companies can use for good decision hygiene? A lot of it has to do with governance, right? So, you know, I, I came across a company one time that a very large company, they had three divisions and each division had, let's say, roughly 20 business units. And, and one of the executives one time said to me, you know, we allocate resources to the three division heads and, and, and cross our fingers and hope that those division heads, you know, make the right decisions, right? But those division heads have a much short term, much shorter term sort of incentive structure than the corporation or than the enterprise as a whole. And so one of the biggest things is changing governance. First of all, resource allocation, both people and dollars, is one of the most important things a company does, right? So one of the things we encourage is the CEO and the CFO play a much more formal role at a granular level. They should be looking at the top 10 to 30 strategic initiatives, not as killers of initiatives, but to make sure that all the important initiatives, all the strategic priorities are fully funded, right? Make sure that the strategic priorities are translated into concrete initiatives. Another thing that needs to get done is the separation of debate and decision-making. All the social science research suggests that rigorous debate leads to better decisions. And so you want to create a situation where um, when you're talking about ranking initiatives or evaluating initiatives, you've got everyone in the room who has a point of view and you have a rigorous debate, even if you have to perhaps go so far as to appoint someone to take a contrarian point of view. But when it comes to decision making, you know, you can't have 15 people in a room making tough decisions, right? You can't try to achieve consensus because then you'll end up with the lowest common denominator, right? So what you need to have is a situation where you have rigorous debate in one forum and then the CEO and CFO and maybe a couple of one or two other executives go off and make the hard decisions. I was recently talking to a CEO. And we were, this wasn't even part of the topic, but somehow it came up. At first he pushed back. And then, you know, upon reflection, he said, you know, you're absolutely right. We do try to achieve consensus. As a result, we always end up sort of sub-optimizing, not making the bold decisions, not taking risks that we should be taking, et cetera. So those are just two examples, right? One, having the CEO, CFO be much more involved at a granular level to make sure that important 10 to 30 strategic initiatives are fully funded and moving forward. And secondly, separating debate from decision-making. Tim, you have a decades-long sweep, and you mentioned uh, appointing someone to take a contrarian view. Do you think that people are dissenting less now? I think it really depends... I find that companies can almost get too big. It becomes difficult to have the debate and dissent, right? On the other hand, some of the younger companies typically have much more of a debate culture built into them, right? Sometimes, you know, we, we promote people to be CEOs because of their charisma as much as anything else. Those companies often have less dissent or less debate. I use the word debate rather than dissent. So I do think that that is a, a challenge. And I think that, you know, one of the personal concerns I have is that are we teaching younger people how to dissent as they enter organizations? So if they enter an organization, even an organization like McKinsey, and they don't see dissent, they're not going to feel comfortable 
dissenting or debating, right? One of the things that I was very lucky early in my career, I found that, you know, even in the first couple months I joined the firm, I always have knock down drag out debates with some of the senior partners and they loved it, right? And when someone who's brand new to the firm disagrees with me and gives me their reasons, I love it because I learned something, they learned something, we come up with a better answer, right? I heard two outcomes. One is that people don't dissent. One is that people dissent. I imagine there's a third though, that they dissent badly or poorly. What's an example of, of, of a bad way to dissent? A bad way to dissent is to make it personal. Okay, so I do remember d several decades ago working with someone and she was shocked at the level of an intensity of debate in the team environment that I was leading, right? But what she was impressed by was it was all about, you know, the facts and logic and points of view, et cetera, and learning. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, nobody felt bad that they were personally attacked, right? It can be knocked down, drag out as long as it's focused on the content and not on individuals. Thank you. We've covered a lot in 20 years of knowing each other. And we have 20, 20 years of articles in McKinsey and Finance telling C CFOs what they should pay attention to. But there are only so many hours in a day, even for CFOs. What are some things that a CFO should not get too caught up in? I think CEOs need to develop strong, a strong team behind them that can handle things that are more tactical and less strategic, right? In, in today's environment, Oftentimes, the CFO plays a key role in strategy, direction, educating the rest of the management team, et cetera, making the hard decisions. Oftentimes, you know, being the CEO's right-hand person, if you will, in terms of these questions. So they have to make sure that they you know, have controllers and tax people who they trust who can operate pretty independently so the CFO can spend most of their time on strategic issues, right? And Tim, question for you. I, you know, in 20 years of McKinsey on finance, is there an article you wish you hadn't written or published or one that you wish you had that you haven't done yet? Well, it's interesting. We, you know, we recently looked back to create the 20th anniversary issue and there aren't any articles that I came across that I was involved in that I would say I would take that back. We Let's go back to the sort of McKinsey on finance as a topic itself, right? One of the reasons we did this is much to get the word out, but also as a forcing device to get our ideas on paper, right? And to be relevant to the conversations that companies were going on. The world doesn't change that quickly in the world of finance. So the principles don't change. And so what we really needed was something that was very practical, that told clients you know, what to do under different circumstances. Typically, the way ideas come from for McKinsey on Finance is from client questions. It's been a great opportunity both for me to learn from other people and hopefully for other people to learn from our collaboration. We meet every week 
for an hour once a week, no matter the circumstance. We don't we don't cancel our meetings. We're debating ideas. We're coming up with new ideas. I still look forward to those weekly meetings after 20 years. All right, Tim, David, thanks so much for joining us today. This was a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it, and I know our listeners will too. As always, we'll share a transcript of the discussion on our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com ITSR, where you can also easily explore our extensive library of previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page or follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.